You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. That's what we call at Illini Life a seamless transition. Good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Russell Dietrich. I just thought out this morning after a very cold evening. I don't know if anyone else, is this cold getting anyone else down? Yeah. Thanks, Zach. I'm a, I'm a summer kind of person. I need one of these. I was born in July, a, a very balmy July day, so my body was brought into this world in a very warm climate, and it longs for that warm climate all the time. But for those of you that don't know me, my name is Russell. I've been on staff here at iLife uh, since 2013, and I have the privilege of teaching from James to you guys today. Before we get into that, though, I wanted to share a little story with you guys. So my wife, Megan, and I, we got married in May of 2015. Thank you. We just hit day 1,338. Wow. Next to my bed, I, it's, I have a little, like, tally I keep. Some, like a, yeah, like prison, a little bit. No, I'm kidding. If anyone would have that, it'd be Megan, because she's great. So, as many married couples can attest to, right, after you get engaged, you unintentionally open up a Pandora's box you didn't know existed. And this box is called unsolicited advice. <laughs> where older married people, and, and actually more often divorced people, give you their wisdom about marriage as an institution. And, and me personally, I now do this as a married person. Many of you know I have the great pleasure of passing this tradition on, and uh, I love giving engaged and pre-engaged couples advice. I'm the unofficial, unsolicited marriage guru. And it's well-intentioned, right? But when I was engaged, I had people tell me things like, hey, make sure you have a prenup and make sure you have separate bank accounts. You know, just because. Just because you never know. We, we didn't take that advice. Another one I heard a lot, happy wife, happy life. Do whatever she says. That one served me well. She would say, happy husband, happy life. But. Or another classic I heard a lot was, don't have kids until you've been married at least five years. That's fine advice, but uh, we're at three and a half, no kids yet, so we're kind of taking that advice. Wait, you're catching my drift, right? Older married people and divorcees, they love telling the betrothed how they should have a successful marriage. So wh- why do I mention this, right? Well, 1,338 days ago, Megan and I were actually given some amazing advice from my grandfather-in-law at our reception. And the fact that I remember this advice is miraculous because I do not remember 80% of my wedding. (laughs) But for whatever reason, I remember this. My opa, he pulled us both in close, put his arms around us, and he said, remember, God gave you two ears and one mouth. So be quick to listen and slow to speak. Yeah. 
This advice has served Megan and I well. And I truly believe when our marriage is at its most functional is when we're living by this principle of quick listening. Now, for those of you that were at small group this week, you've already had a chance to study the passage we're doing today, and you'll know that my Opa's advice was actually taken from the book of James. Chapter 1, verse 19, which says, Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Two ears, one mouth. And I would imagine that many of you have heard this in some variation, because James is a very popular book of the Bible. It's so popular, it's even leaked into mainstream American culture. Take a minute to think about all the James, Jims, Jimmies, Jimbos, Jim Jims, you know. Think about this, conspiracy. We have three late-night hosts named James. There's something going on there. Douglas Mew, in our companion commentary, he says it well. Few books of the New Testament are better known or more often quoted than James. It is probably one of the two or three most popular books in the church. So even if you haven't read James, I I guarantee you've probably heard it in some form. And why is this, right? Moo points out three things about James that makes it, it palatable. The first is it has great metaphors and illustrations, and we're going to see those as we move through the series over the next uh, six weeks. James is concise. Another way to say concise is tweetable. James writes in tweets. He would have been a killer Twitter follow. I guarantee it. And lastly, James, he's intensely practical. And for us here in this fine country, we love practicality. Can I get a name into that? You guys are practical people. And the reason James is so practical is because one of his chief concerns in this letter is action. And it's this idea of action where we find the centerpiece of our passage today, where from my vantage point, James offers the summary of this letter. When he says in verse 22, be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. James has a strong predilection for action. And that bias he carries is what makes this book so popular. Because as Christians, many of us are looking for practical ways to to be like Jesus. And James gives us those ways gladly. James is 108 verses long. And it has 50 imperatives within those 108 verses. 50. 50 things you can do to put your faith in action. I would also argue this is why James tends to be a controversial book, because even though we love practicality, ironically, we also don't like being told what to do. And James tells you what to do. And a lot of times, you're going to be like, yo, James, take a chill pill. As Nick showed us last week in his introduction, James does not want God's people presuming on his grace. And over and over and over in this letter, he is going to call us to manifest our faith in Jesus through our bodies, through good works. Last week, we were given some imperatives. 
to count it all joy when we face various trials, to ask God for wisdom when we need it. And another one was to remain steadfast in trials, which Nick beautifully illustrated about the story of his son. In our passage this week, then, James is going to jump back and forth between a couple instructional themes. So I thought it'd be helpful for us to organize this sermon around two body parts. The first part, we're going to be looking at our mouths. We're going to be told to be slow to speak. And we're going to be told to bridle our tongues. And then the second part, we're going to look at our bodies. James tells us to be doers of the word and to care for the less fortunate. Since we're going to be jumping around a little bit, this is going to be a little bit unconventional. I want to read the whole passage to you just straight up. And I didn't make a slide for this because I want you guys to close your eyes and listen. I want you to hear the word. And hopefully by hearing, you'll be motivated to be a doer. If you're not very trustworthy, you don't have to close your eyes. Keep them open. Look at me. But uh, if you want to go ahead and close your eyes and, and just listen to God's word. Here's James 1, 19 through 27. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. For your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in the mirror, for they look at themselves and on going away, immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. If any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongues, but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Would you guys pray with me? Father God, we just ask that you would give us ears to hear, give me words to speak, and ultimately, Lord, that we would leave this room and be doers, not just listeners, God. We need you. We need your Spirit's power to manifest these actions in our bodies, and we just pray for your help as we study your word as written by James. Thank you, God, for this beautiful congregation, your beloved people. We're so grateful, God. We lift all these things up in your name. Amen. Real quick, could someone in the back give me a cup of water, please? I forgot. I'm sorry. Okay. Now, before we continue, as I, start, I was studying these verses, I, I felt like it'd be helpful to give you a little background on the geography of James's audience. And I have this kind of personal streak going where I show you guys a map at all my teachings, and I, I want to keep that going because I love maps. I always have, I always will, and I think they're a lot of fun. Not, are, not only are they fun, but I think it'll be helpful, too. It's not just a self-serving thing. So, uh, like Nick mentioned last week, James's introduction is very brief and to the point, and it states very clearly who his intended audience is. Does anyone remember? Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, how, how it's written is the 12 tribes of the dispersion in the ESV and NRSV. And we're dating this letter to the early 40s AD. Thank, can we, no, Lynn. Can we get for Susie to speak out? Here's to you, kid. Oh, Miller, Matt. Matt, I'm sorry. Susie, sorry. You know, if you get married, just hyphenate your last name, you know? Did anyone hear that one? Anyway. So James would have been writing this very shortly after Jesus was crucified, right? Around the 40s AD, after he resurrected, after he ascended. And he, he, James said 12 tribes, that's referencing Jewish people, in the dispersion, people that have been dispersed. Now, if you know anything about dispersion, it is usually not a good thing to be dispersed from where you live. I do not want to be dispersed from my apartment right now because I would freeze to death. Now, if we reference the history book of the early church written by Luke, this book is called Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, we get a glimpse into what was happening to these early Jewish believers. Luke writes, Now to those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, 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 how do you guys say that? Stephan. That arose over Stephan, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So shortly after Jesus ascended and the apostles were starting to spread the word about him, one of the more outspoken apostles named, or followers named Stephen, was stoned to death for his beliefs. And he was stoned to death by his fellow Jews. And after that, a great persecution broke out amongst the Jews. And Jewish people were persecuting their fellow man because their brothers and sisters were proclaiming faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And not to to cast them as senseless villains, for them, this was a sin of blasphemy for people that did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Something interesting happened, though. By being forced out of Jerusalem, the early Jewish Christians began to unintentionally spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they did this primarily amongst other Jews. Now, if we look at this map, we're going to get a sense of the distance people were traveling. So down here in the bottom right, we have uh, Palestine, and that's where Jerusalem's located. Do you want to throw that out, Maddie? And boom, cross, Jesus. That's where it went down. Pretty cool. Go visit. I hear it's fun. Now, the persecution happens, and people flee. And they went to Alexandria, Cyprus, and the Phoenician region. And you can kind of see the, the distance. People, this was far. People didn't have cars or airplanes. They had to either walk or take a boat. And, and they were cast out of their homes because of what they believed. Now, if you've ever been away from home, you've probably experienced some level of homesickness. But you have to remember, this homesickness would have been more painful because they were not choosing to be far from home. They were not going to an LT. They were not going on a vacation. They were not studying abroad. They, they were exiled from where they lived because of what they believed, because they were fearful for their lives. And I believe if we grasp the pain that they were in, we see all the more powerfully how high the stakes were when James exhorts his people to remain joyful and steadfast 
during this trial. The passage in Acts gives us another clue. It says that the Jews were speaking the word to no one except Jews. This kind of alludes to this idea that as these Jews were fleeing, they were finding other Jews to join and to to join in their community. Does that make sense? Let me give you an imperfect analogy. Imagine that a a zombie apocalypse befalls Champaign-Urbana, right? And you guys scatter. Because you don't want to get eaten by a zombie, right? I don't. Do you? Guys, zombie apocalypse is is serious. Now, what sort of people are you going to be looking for to team up with to fight the zombies? For me, my ideal mate would be a farmer that is good with weapons, who is also a CrossFit trainer, because I would know if they did CrossFit, they were probably a Christian. And I I would want to be with a a weapon-utilizing, farmer, muscular, Christian man to help defend me from the zombies, because I'm a lot of things, but I don't think I'd fare well against a zombie. I would need someone to protect me. And bonus points if that muscular farmer was from Chicago, my hometown. You see what I'm getting at, though? When you're displaced from your homeland, you want, we all have a tendency to find the familiar, especially when it comes to faith. During this hypothetical zombie apocalypse, I'm going to probably be having a lot of doubts about God and why didn't he mention zombies in the Bible and, you know, what's happening I would probably want to be around other Christians to work out these theological questions that the zombie apocalypse was forcing upon me. But in addition, by them being Christians, there's a familiarity there and a comfort and ease of communication. So these displaced Jewish Christians were finding and joining in with other Jewish Christian communities in these new regions, and they were starting new lives. People were placing their faith in Christ because of this dispersion that was happening. By the time of James's letter, several years had passed since that initial persecution in Jerusalem. So many of these people would have settled down and started new communities. And as you know, with any community, when people get together, they're going to have issues. Some of the issues that people were having that James is writing to aren't that different than issues we face. Class disparities, rich versus poor. There was gossip and slander and backbiting, what you kids call talking smack. There was quarreling. When was the last time you got into a good quarrel? This morning? Amen. Well, I didn't, personally. We we had a fine morning, but we've quarreled. Trust me, three and a half years, we've quarreled. Um, Another issue, marginalized groups being ignored. And we can infer in the letter that there was religious syncretism going on. And and I don't know if you guys know what syncretism means, but basically these early Christian believers were being tempted to conform to the other cultures and religions that they were around. James does not pull any punches in chapter 4, and he says it very plainly what the issue is in the dispersion. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? In their time of distress, the early believers were turning their backs on God. And James's letter is one long exhortation, pleading with them not to. How relevant is this? 
How often do we see others turning their backs on Jesus because of the pain and the hardship in their lives? Why would God ever do that to me? Why would God allow these people to kick me out of Jerusalem? How often do we ourselves feel tempted to turn our backs on Jesus because of the hardships we're facing? Why would God let that happen to me? He must not be good. He must not be real. This letter may not have been written to us directly, but man, this letter is for us. And as we turn our attention to verse 19, we see that James is deeply concerned, deeply concerned with your mouth. Because your mouth, my mouth, our mouths get us into a lot of trouble. Can I get the loudest amen in the history of Illini life? Do it now, though. Ooh, my eardrums. All right, verse 19 through 21. You must understand this, my beloved. James he loves his audience, so don't, don't forget that, that he loves you. Sometimes when you're getting a hard word, you have to know the person loves you. And if you want to give a hard word, it's good to reassure that person, hey, I love you, and now I'm going to lay into you. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce, righteousness, does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourself of all swordness, and rank growth of wickedness, and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. Something nice about James is it doesn't require a lot of explaining. You read it, and and it kind of is what it is. And as we look at verse 19, I'm sure many of us can easily understand what good advice it is to listen, but how easy this is to ignore. Now, I, I don't know how many of you have heard of a service out there called Twitter. You guys familiar with this? like a social media application. And it's a really, go check it out. Um, it's a really good picture of a world being quick to speak and slow to listen, right? Or even more subtly, on Facebook, what, what's the question that greets us every time we pull up our timelines on our browser? What's on your mind? What's on your mind? Now, social media is a new technology, but it's benefiting and playing on something that's very old, narcissism. Our own tendency to want to speak and be heard and understood and everyone else be damned, right? And whether you're thinking of a marriage, a dating relationship, a friendship, a business partnership, your coworkers, your classmates, I'd go as far to say In pretty much any relationship, the source of a majority of conflict is going to be centered around people not hearing each other. You're not listening to me, man. How many times has someone been talking to you? But instead of listening to them, you're zoning out, thinking of your rebuttal. And then your rebuttal doesn't make sense because you weren't actually listening to them. It's like, what are you talking about? Well, I don't know. James shows us that slowness to listen leads to conflict because when we don't feel heard, what happens? We turn into the Hulk. We say, 
get angry. The hawk. Someone just needs listening, you know? He wouldn't turn green. And when we get angry, more often than not, we act unrighteously. You little doop to doop to doop, right? You ever call someone a little doop to doop to doop? That's usually my go-to for Megan when we're fighting. You little doop to doop to doop. James is touching on something that I think is so important, and it's this. As Christians, we need to be really, 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 really conscious of our mouth. Really conscious. And I think as believers, we need to strive for our tongues to be bridled and under control. James hits this point home very bluntly. And in a way, for me, cut real deep. Jumping ahead to verse 26, he says, If any think they are religious, and do not bridle their tongues. They deceive their hearts. Their religion is worthless. If you think you're religious, but you don't bridle your tongue, your religion is worthless. The stakes are high. This matters. And I can testify as someone who has hurt people with my tongue and who has been hurt by people with their tongues. This stuff, Unbridled tongues can destroy communities. I've seen unbridled tongues end marriages. I've seen them end friendships. And I have seen them end small groups and churches. It is horrible what our tongues can do. So what do we do? How how do we slow it down? How How do we bridle this wild beast that lives inside our mouths? How do we become rapid listeners? The application is found back in verse 21. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness, and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. The way we put our mouths under control is by allowing the implanted word of God to purify us and cleanse us. James's half-brother, this is a pretty cool half-brother, his name is Jesus. He says it really well in Matthew 15, 17 through 20. When he says, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? When you eat, you go to the bathroom. Isn't that interesting? Jesus talks about going to the bathroom. Um, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, These are what defile a person. Your mouth is connected to your heart. Your mouth is connected to your heart. And the most effective way to bridle your tongue is to have the seed of the word of God deeply planted within your heart. And when that happens, when your heart is fully grasped by God's good word, what comes out of your mouth is the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of humility, the fruit of meekness. If your mouth is getting you into a lot of trouble, check your heart. Something is probably wrong. God's word, the scriptures, his gospel, 
In the ultimate capital W word, Jesus is described as the word in the Gospel of John. He has the power to transform and heal your heart of bitterness and pain and sorrow and fear. And through the reception of the implanted word, we find the ability to rid ourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness. It's through the reception of the implanted word that we are able to bridle our tongues. Now, sword and rank are SAT words, um, and they basically mean this. Sword's filthy, rank in this context. You got to think of like overgrown weeds. If you've ever seen like a, a patch of plants that just have not been tended to, it's rank, you know, not dank, rank. So Jesus' words, they get into the garden of your heart. They clear it out. They get rid of anything that's dead or icky or rotten or, or you know, just the gross stuff. And then he prunes it out and, and trims it down, and, and he revitalizes the, guide, the garden of your heart. And that then clears the path for your mouth to put forth righteous and edifying speech, right? The healing words of Jesus, deeply implanted in your heart, quiets your mouth, opens up your ears. The same gospel seed that saves your soul also renews and heals your heart so that your mouth can be a wellspring of life. The root cause of an unbridled tongue is ultimately pride, which is why James calls us to welcome the implanted word with meekness, with humility, with the understanding that you are not better than than the person that you are tearing down with your tongue. Humility is the bit in the mouth that helps guide us and lead us. A bridal tongue, then, is a tongue that speaks blessing. It's a tongue that advocates for righteousness. It's a tongue that calls out gossip. And it's a tongue that pursues peace with the people that drive us the most crazy. The more we tame our tongues, the more freed up our ears are to hear other people. Like my opus said, two ears, one mouth. Just how God designed it. So let's now shift our focus from our mouths to our bodies. Because if we truly receive the implanted word of Jesus, we are endowed with a high calling to action. Or to use James's favorite verb, to do. Your body has work to do, verse 22 through 25. But be doers of the word, and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and on going away immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. I'm not sure about you, but my impression of the church as a whole is I'd say we're pretty good at being hearers of the word. We come to church on Sunday, we hear a good sermon, a great sermon, um, a fine sermon. We go to small group, we have a great discussion. We might even use our newly bridled tongues to speak encouragement over our, our leader, Eric Velasco, in the Ike group, give it for Ike. Eric's a good guy. Say hi to him, Lenny. We go to leadership training. We go to overnighters. We go to seminars. Some of you 
even go to seminary. And we hear lots and lots and lots of good stuff. But for many of us, after the hearing, there is not much doing. Take me, for example. I'm a recovering hearer, but do nothinger. I grew up in the church. I grew up hearing a lot about Jesus, a lot about salvation. And not only did I hear a lot, I, I knew a lot. I was a star Sunday school kid. As I got older, I would serve at my youth group. I would serve on worship teams. And my leaders, they always thought very highly of me. That Russ, he's going places. Ah, they never said that. but I heard the word, and from time to time, I would do the word. But once I got into high school, I really began to doubt the implanted word. And it starts with, like, silly stuff. Well, I guess drinking is not silly, but it makes you, it, it makes you silly. So I'd ask questions like, does God really care if I drink? I know I'm only 15, but like, who cares, right? I know the Bible talks about drunkenness and submitting to the laws of the land, and, but it's probably fine. Another one, does God really care if I cross physical boundaries with my girlfriend? I, I mean, I, I know the Bible talks about sexual purity and fleeing from temptation, but we're not technically having intercourse, you know? It's probably fine. Another one, this is a, a hard one for me to this day. I know the Bible talks about gossip, but who cares if I talk all sorts of smack about my former best friend because he's a total idiot and other people need to know that he is a total idiot so that his idiocy does not infect them. It's a righteous cause talking behind his back. By not being a doer of the word, my doubting of the implanted word of God began to escalate. I found myself at the end of high school reading Nietzsche and Sartre and listening to these bands. It was kind of like emo. You guys know about emo music? And I really liked these bands that would sing about nihilism and atheism and how God was a lie created by man to be an opiate for the masses or how God was a lie to control people and to oppress people. Yeah. And it just kept spiraling until I got to college and I found myself a junior. I was essentially living with my girlfriend of two years and I would sit at my desk and I would doubt whether God was real or not. But if you would have asked me in that moment, Russ, are you a Christian? Russ, are you a believer in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I would have said yes. And even though James wrote this letter over 2,000 years ago, he had me pegged. I would look in the mirror, and I would say to myself, I am a Christian. But then I would walk away, and I would forget who I was in a haze of alcohol and sex and existential dread. And it wasn't until I began to see God's laws not as oppressive and stifling, but rather as perfect and liberating, that I was really able to become my true self. And what is our truest identity? When your faith is in Jesus, you are an adopted child of the Most High King. You're royalty. I was able to understand that. I was able to be freed up to be a doer of the word. The laws God places around our sexuality and our morality and our mouths are not there to kill our joy, 
but they are rather there to enhance your joy, to give you life. They're there to bless you. They were there to bless me. My refusal to be a doer of the word almost led to me losing my faith. But God is good. He rescued me from that pit. And here's what happened. I, I got dumped. Praise God. Many, many, many years later, I met Megan. Praise God. I got deeply invested in a church community. You can guess which one. I restarted friendships with some key Christians that I had been neglecting and avoiding, if I'm being honest. And I began to read the Bible. This was huge. I just read the Bible. I've been a Christian my whole life, but I never really took the time to read the Bible. And I would try to do the words on the page. I remembered who I was, and I was blessed. Now, I'm not sure where you find yourself today, but I would encourage you, if you were like me, if you're good at hearing the word, but not so good at doing the word, just reach out to somebody and ask for help. And do this before it kills your faith. Do this before you graduate from college. Because I'll tell you what, after you graduate, it only gets harder. And over and over again, we see people leaving, the implanted word of Jesus being choked out because people are not doing the word. And we do not want that for them. As we close, we're going to look at verse 27. And I'm happy to report this. None of you today will leave with the question of, well, what do we do now? What do we do? What is there to do? Because get this, James. He tells you what to do. He lays it out pretty clearly. If you're looking to be a doer of the word, here are two very tangible religious activities in which to do it. Let's read verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Care for orphans and widows. Keep yourself unstained from the world. These are good and pure religions. Now, I don't know what happened, but for whatever reason, in Christian circles, the word religion has kind of gotten a bad rap, right? Several years ago, it was very popular to say, I don't want religion, man. I want a relationship with Jesus. You guys remember that? It's like a really popular poem that went viral. And that's good. Don't get me wrong. I'm all about relationship with Jesus. Big fan. But it is impossible to not be religious. Because when James talks about religion, all he is talking about is worship in general. Or to say it another way, religion is the outward practice of, or ceremonies in honor of God. So we all do this. We all participate in religious activities. We did it earlier today. We sang two worship songs. A Newsboys one. Throwback. Give it up for Newsboys. I was like transplanted to youth group. I was like, what is happening? Triggered. Another religious activity, right? We take communion. Keep doing that. That's good. We have small groups. Keep going to small groups. Church on Sunday. This whole thing. Religious activity. These are all good and fine, and I hope you continue to partake in them. So with that in mind, we have to understand that James is trying to get at something really specific here. 
And he's contrasting what we were talking about earlier, about the phony religious person. And that person is someone who does all these things. They go to church, they go to small group, they take communion, but they don't bridle their tongue. They're still talking smack. They're still tearing people down. They're using their tongue for evil and not for good. And James wants to give us a proactive image of a successful religious person. He doesn't just want to leave you hanging with do nots. He wants to give you some do's. And I love that about James. He's so practical. Now, I want to overstate something. I don't think it's helpful to be overly literal with this first instruction. And here's why. I think caring for orphans and widows is good. And James says it's a pure religious activity. But I do think it's okay to serve other disadvantaged people. There's homeless people. There's refugees. There's the working class poor. There's people that don't know how to read. Illiteracy is a huge issue. And that's a gift most of you have, being literate. There's prisoners. There's single moms. They're widows in a way that their husbands aren't dead, but they're the men that ought to have been their husbands left them, abandoned them. James mentions widows and orphans because they were especially helpless during this refugee crisis. And the reason that was is because they did not have an adult male to vouch for them in that society. The widows and orphans needed special attention. They needed help. The point James is making is good religion is to help people that are helpless. And that is something you can do regardless of your age. If you're 18 years old, you can help somebody who is helpless. And that is a good and pure form of religion. Just keep your eyes open. Now, if God puts it on your heart to work with orphans and to minister to, to women that have lost their husbands, please do this. I have a widow in my life that's very near and dear to me, and I try to help her. It's my mom, who um, my biological father didn't pass away, but my stepdad did, her, her third husband. And there's special support and help and care that is needed there. Orphans need help. There's lots of, of ministries in town where you can help work with the fatherless and the motherless. Helping people in need is a good and pure religious activity. Go do it. Now this last one, this last thing James says to do, I think is really challenging. And I think it's especially hard in 2019 because he says to keep oneself unstained by the world. And I think this is hard because, if we're being honest, I think Christianity has become a friend of the world. And I think it's harder than ever to, to distinguish between what, what, what's being a Christian, what's a Christian value, and what's a worldly value. And for me, at least, it's hard to know what's what. What's right thinking? What should I believe? What should I advocate for? What social causes should I be standing up for? It's complicated. And the pressure to be a friend of the world is great, and it's especially great on college campuses. But we must heed the words of James when he says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. And I'm here to pass along the exhortation. When given a choice to be opposed to the world or to be opposed to God, I pray that you would choose being opposed to the world. 
Choose God's side. This feels vague, so let me give you a quick handhold as we end. As you go about your life, you're going to be doing this thing called constructing a worldview. And as you, as you age, as your brain develops and changes, as you get wounded by life, you're going to reconstruct your worldview. Your worldview is constantly developing. And a worldview is simply put, a particular philosophy of life or conception of the world. Your worldview is made up of what you believe about ethics, politics, societal structures, gender, sexuality, science, religion, philosophy, everything. And it all intersects to create your viewpoint. Every single person in this room has a worldview. Even if you didn't know it, you're welcome. I just gave you a gift. You have a worldview. Happy worldview day. So my exhortation is this. As you're constructing your worldview, I want you to ask yourself, what percentage of my conclusions are being informed by secular society and what percentage of my conclusions are being informed by God's word? And how do we know God's word? How do we know God's mind? It's, it's there in the scriptures. That's a primary way that God reveals himself. There's other ways that he reveals himself in addition to that, but, but scripture is, is an easy, clear way where we see God's heart and his mind. I would love that all of you would decide that your conclusions are going to be informed by the mind of God and not the mind of the world. And it's confusing because there will be some moments of overlap as you're constructing your worldview. Society can reflect God's wisdom at times. But I promise you, there are going to be moments where the world is pressuring us to believe something that will 100% contradict what is proclaimed in Scripture. And I just want to encourage you, take God's side. Suffer the consequences, suffer the trial, suffer the ridicule, and hold steadfast. If we don't do this, many of us will walk away from the Lord because friendship with the world is enmity with God. And hopefully today I can exhort you, break up with that fool. That world ain't doing you any favors. Be friends with Jesus. He's got a lot to offer. He's a really good guy. Keeping oneself unsaved from the world is a lifelong endeavor because the world keeps in many new and more innovative ways to befriend you and turn you against Jesus. And that's why James endorses this as pure religion. This keeps you alive. Two ears, one mouth. Be quick to listen, be slow to speak. And don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers also. Rattle your tongue. Care for those that need help. Keep yourself insane from the world. There's a lot to do today. I'm so excited that we're going to be able to leave and have ways to apply these things to our lives. So let's pray together. Let's ask for God's help. And ultimately remember that it's, it's through grace that we can go and do these things. Grace expressing itself through works. Jesus loves you. He saved you. He died for you. And now it's your pleasure to serve him. Not to earn anything. He gave you his death on the cross. He gave you his resurrection two years ago. You don't have to do anything to get that. But now afterwards, after that seed of faith has been planted in your heart, 
You have good works to do. And today, we got a couple. So let's pray, and then let's sing in response.